In this season of Smart Talks with IBM, Malcolm Gladwell will sit down with thought leaders and industry innovators from IBM and beyond. The show will explore what it means to look at today's most challenging problems in a new way. Look out for new episodes every month on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and learn more at ibm.com slash smarttalks. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and a lot of all things tech. And first of all, if I sound a little different, it's because I'm actually in the office in a studio, though I am recording on my normal at-home equipment, so... There might be some slight differences in the quality of sound, but uh, just hang with me, guys. And recently, someone on Twitter called me out for an article that I wrote many years ago for HowStuffWorks.com, uh, and it was about home theater systems, the article, and the person called me out because I used the term man cave right at the very beginning of the article, and the criticism was that that I had fired off a gendered noun right at the beginning of a piece, and I want to be clear that was a crappy thing for me to have done. It was crappy back then. It's definitely crappy now. I would never write it that way today. I'd like to think that over the following years from writing that article, I've grown a little bit as a person, and I certainly try to do that. But all of this is my intro to say, we're going to do an updated episode about home theater systems. Actually, a couple of episodes because there's a lot to talk about. Now, maybe you want to put together a home theater, or maybe you're just 
thinking about upgrading your setup, or maybe you just want to know what's the deal with all the latest options out there and to figure out which one might be best for you and, you know, your situation. So we're going to try and build the perfect person cave together. And this episode's really going to focus on uh, the TV or the screen, depending on what you want to do. And Here's a tricky thing. So there are a lot of terms and numbers and metrics when it comes to home theater systems. And these are not always the easiest to understand or parse. Also, uh, there's this tendency to think that bigger numbers are better. They're not necessarily better. And that might shock some of my fellow Americans because we typically go with more please when it comes to metrics. So I'm going to try and do my best to demystify some of these different features and explain what it actually means. So at a minimum, a good home theater system needs a screen, whether a projection screen or a TV screen and a sound system. So we're going to really focus on the screen part for this episode. And let's start with talking about, you know, um, you know, resolutions. Because when I first started writing about home theaters, the top of the line TV screens at that time when I was first writing about them, they maxed out in the HD TV range. And that stands for high definition television, which is almost obsolete at this point as far as new televisions are concerned. So it's a good idea to kind of go down the path of those, you know, definitions and resolutions to talk about what that means and what the state of the art is today. Now, mostly it does come down to resolution or how many distinct components called pixels, aka little points of light, make up an image on the screen. So when we look at a television, the images we see are made up of thousands of points of light of various colors. Uh, we'll get to color representation in a little bit in this episode. So there's this analogy that I typically use when I talk about resolution. So let's say that you've got yourself a wooden frame and it's on the ground. It's, you know, its edges are a couple of inches high. And the frame itself is about 35 inches wide and 20 inches tall. Uh, that is roughly the dimensions of a 40-inch television uh, because we actually measure TVs on the diagonal across the screen. So from an upper corner to a lower corner, uh, diagonally across, rather than just vertically or horizontally. So if you've ever wondered, hey, this said it was a you know 42-inch television, but it's not 42 inches wide, that's why it's on the diagonal. And let's say that I give you a bucket that's filled with little wooden blocks. And each of these blocks are, you know, a various, a, a specific color. So each block is a solid color and they're all just one inch cubes. So you get one inch per side on these cubes. And I ask you to make a picture using those blocks inside this frame. And I want the picture to be a cat because I work on the internet and that means there's like a 75% chance that any photo I'm talking about is going to at least have a cat in it. Well, because each block is a solid color, you would have to do your best to make a cat image within the confines of this frame I've given you. And those blocks are one inch uh, you know, cubes. So you would end up with some pretty jagged edges for any curves that you wanted to represent in this cat picture. So this would be a pretty low resolution image. Now let's say we dumped out all those blocks after you made your picture of a cat 
and I gave you another bucket filled with blocks, but these cubes are half an inch per side, so you can fit twice as many across the horizontal and vertical lines. So with the one-inch cube, if you were to actually fill the entire frame from corner to corner, you would be able to fit 700 cubes total in that frame because we multiply 20 times 35, 20 inches by 35 inches, we get uh, 700. And uh, that, you know, because the cubes are one inch, that tells you 700 cubes could fit within that frame. Well, now we're using half-inch cubes. With half-inch cubes, you could fit 2,800 cubes in the frame. So you've half the size and you've quadrupled the number of blocks you can use. So your cat picture that you use with these half-inch blocks is going to be better than the first one because the blocks you're using allow you to approach fine detail a little more effectively. So as we decrease the size of the blocks, but we're keeping the same shape of the frame, we increase the number of blocks that can fit in that frame and our picture starts to look more sharp and clear as we do this. That is resolution, uh, to a point anyway. So by the time resolutions were standardized during the history of television, you really had two broad standards. You had the European PAL and CCAM systems, which used a resolution that we refer to as 576. That meant there were 576 rows of pixels. Uh, so if you isolated one vertical line of pixels from top to bottom on the screen and you counted them all, you would count up to 576. Across the screen, from side to side, you had 704 columns of pixels. So 704 pixels from left to right, 576 from top to bottom. Multiply those together, that gives us a total of more than 400,000 pixels to play with to make our pictures. In the U.S., it was a slightly different story. Standard definition was 480 pixels vertically, so from top to bottom, and 704 horizontally, left to right. That gave us a slightly lower resolution of, than Europe had of around 338,000 pixels on the screen, a little less than that, actually. And I should also add that most screens had an aspect ratio of 4 to 3. This refers to the ratio of the television's width compared to its height. Now, in the example I gave earlier, the frame that I mentioned, that would actually be more the modern standard of aspect ratios for televisions, which is 16 by 9. That's what we used to call the widescreen format back when those TVs were first hitting the market. And not everyone was sold on them back in those days because we were all so used to the 4 by 3 uh, ratio. But in the old days, most TVs looked a little more boxy than the ones we have today. And this is why when you watch older television shows, you frequently see that the image doesn't really extend all the way to the edges of your television screen unless someone has, you know, like digitally punched in, which is awful because that means you lose the details that are otherwise at the edges. Uh, the Simpsons did this and it was terrible because a lot of visual gags got cut off because the, the image was punched in. And um, I want to say Fox and then Disney kind of relented and gave people the option of being able to view those episodes in their original 4 by 3 aspect ratio. And uh, that's kind of how things were for decades with, you know, some exceptions, but that's all in the past. So we're going to leave them for now because we don't really need to go into detail. 
But then we get up to the era of HDTV, and things started getting really confusing because there were different flavors of HDTV, uh, more so than you found with standard definition. So the three big ones were 720p, 1080i, and 1080p in most parts of the world. So let's go with the numbers first, then I'll explain what that i and p mean. So 720 referred to a resolution of 720 pixels tall by 1,280 pixels wide. That gives us a total of 921,600 pixels. This one often was called HD-ready uh, as opposed to full HD TV. 1080 refers to 1,080 pixels tall by 1,920 pixels wide. And you might say, all right, but when I multiply those two together, I get 2.07 million pixels. And that's true. But here's where we got to talk about the P versus the I. So the P stands for progressive scan and the I stands for interlaced. So with an interlaced display, the screen shows alternating horizontal lines of pixels and paints the image across the screen uh, and then down the screen. So if we were to number the rows of pixels on the screen, going from row one and then working our way down until we had labeled all the way down to row 1080, and if we were to slow things way, way, way down, like super, super, super slow, we would see that the screen would display the, the odd rows first. So rows one, three, five, seven, and so on, all the way down to 1079 would display first. Then you would get the even rows, two, four, six, eight, etc. Now, this happens at a speed that is so fast our eyes can't detect it. So to us, it just looks like a solid image. We don't see that it's really alternating these lines at all. We're getting the experience as if it's all happening at once. But it does mean that effectively, it's only showing half the number of pixels uh, in a given moment. Now, we say this means an interlaced screen uses two fields. One field has all the odd horizontal lines of pixels, and the second field has all the even ones. And these are necessary to create a single frame of video. So each frame is made up of two fields with an interlaced screen. A progressive scan screen draws every line of a frame in sequence. So there's no reason to talk about video fields because field and frame are essentially the same thing here. Now, generally speaking, the edge would go to progressive scan TVs among home theater aficionados. They, th these screens were just better at showing fast-moving sequences in particular. So people who were serious about home theater in the HDTV era often would gravitate toward progressive scan screens. These days, you'll find higher-end televisions in the UHD or ultra-high-definition ranges. In fact, 4K is pretty much the standard now. Uh, but you can also find 8K. So now we've moved away from the convention that we used to use to describe re resolution in the, in the SD and HD eras. And it doesn't help that there's some discrepancies here as well. Like one of the issues that you often run into with home theater is that there's a lack of universal standards for a lot of stuff. And that can cause issues down the line. In televisions, we generally say it's a 4K TV 
when it refers to a resolution of 3,840 pixels wide by 2,160 pixels tall. And um, first of all, you notice that neither of those numbers is 4,000, right? 3,840 is close, like you could round up to 4,000, but neither of those are 4,000, so that makes the 4K thing a little confusing. Also, uh, we see that in previous resolution descriptions, the number that we used to refer to how many pixels tall an image was, was the dominant one, right? 1080 means that you have 1,080 pixels from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. But with 4K, with that 3,840 pixels, we're actually looking at the width of the screen from left to right, not the height of the screen from top to bottom. So those 3,840 pixels go across the screen. And if you're saying, you know, 3,840 isn't the same as 4K, like I said, you're right. And if you're wondering, well, why don't we call it 2160? Because that would still be in the same line as 1080, right? We called it 1080. Why don't we call 4K 2160? Well, that's because I don't know. For some reason, we decided to switch things up and talk about width rather than height as far as pixel density goes. Now, if we're talking about movie projection instead of television screens, 4K usually has a different resolution of 4,096 pixels across and 2,160 pixels up and down. So at least there we get to our 4K bit, right? But for TVs, it's really more 4K-ish. And in fact, there are several different resolutions that are in that neighborhood that are lumped together in the 4K designation. There are even some TVs that you could argue are 5K, but they get lumped down with 4K. And it gets even more confusing when you start talking about cameras and stuff, but we're going to leave all that here. It's mostly to say that it's a higher resolution than the HDTV market. Uh, I imagine the switch to 4K nomenclature is mostly for the convenience of marketing, uh, plus to cover the fact that there were so many slight variations on resolution that it kind of helped cut down on confusion because the differences didn't really translate to a massive difference in viewing experience. So in other words, if one TV's 4K resolution was technically slightly less than another 4K TV's resolution, typically you couldn't really tell because it was at a level of resolution that's so high that our human eyes aren't able to pick up on the differences. So in other words, you could have two of these televisions right next to each other that have slightly different resolutions and not be able to see a difference. Then we've got 8K resolution, and this is where the numbers get even bigger. And like 4K, this is more about 8K-ish than actually having 8,000 pixels across the width of a screen. That number is really 7,680. And as for up and down the screen, well, that's 4,320. That is the maximum resolution allowed by the UHD or ultra-high definition standard set down by the ITU-R recommendation BT.2020. Uh, ITU in this case stands for International Telecommunication Union. And we're going to touch on tech standards a lot throughout this episode because, boy, but at least this one is one that is well and truly set and standardized. It's saying this is the top end. This is where 8K ends right here at this resolution. So yeah, 8K TVs at that maximum resolution have a screen filled with more than 33 million pixels. If you were to have every pixel light up 
and you were to number each one of them, you would come up with more than 33 million of those suckers. So you got 33 million and change teeny little blocks of light, which you can use to make your images. And right now, that's the top of the resolution charts that you can find for home theater television screens. So does that mean that more resolution means a better picture? Not quite. It's actually way more complicated than that. Resolution is important, but it's just one component of making a good picture. Also, there's a limit to the amount of detail that our human eyes can see, and that limit depends upon each person's vision. So it's not like I could give you a specific resolution and say, this is no further. If you go any higher than this, it's a fool's errand because you'll never tell the difference. Ha 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 ha. But there are some other factors that that tie in with resolution when it comes to your viewing experience and how clear or sharp an image is. One of those is the size of the television screen. So let's say we have three televisions. All of them are at HDTV resolution, just to make this easy. And one of those televisions is 42 inches. Another one is 55 inches. And the third is 65 inches. But they all are 1080p resolution. Well, that means that if you were to count up all the pixels on each of those screens, each screen would have the same number of pixels. But that means that the pixels for the 65-inch screen have to be a little bit larger than the ones that you would find on the 42-inch screen. And then the 55-inch screen would be right in the middle, right? Because the same number of pixels are on all three screens, but the screens are different sizes. So it's possible that you would spot a difference in resolution if you were to view the same video source on that 42-inch screen as the 65-inch screen at the same time. You put those next to each other, and you might say, oh, the picture looks more sharp on the 42-inch screen than the 65-inch because you have greater pixel density per area there, right? So screen size does matter. And if you want to go really big, like obnoxiously big with your television screen, then you're going to want a higher resolution to make up for all that real estate that you're going to be using to, to view your stuff. Now, another factor is how close you are sitting to the screen. And this matters for a couple of reasons. The closer you are, the more likely you're going to see issues with resolution up to a point. Uh, so if you have a really big screen and you happen to sit really close to it, and it's all in HDTV resolution, you could end up saying, this doesn't look high definition to me. Now, there are various sources that give out formulas for how far you should sit away from your television, depending upon your television size. And I'll cover more of that in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Okay, so I mentioned before the break that we needed to talk about viewing distances. See, now in the old days, you know, the HDTV days, how close you sat was dependent on a few things. Not just the television size, but also the resolution of the TV and how good your vision was. Uh, Because limitations in resolution would become apparent if the TV were particularly large or if you were sitting fairly close to it. So in other words, you would say like, ah, it doesn't look that great. But in the UHD era of 4K and beyond, it's getting really super hard to spot those resolution issues unless you're talking about, you know, a gargantuan television, like one of those that Sharp would show off at CES on some years, something that's like 100 inches or something. So now the main thing is how your vision, you know, how much of your vision should the television actually fill or rather how much of your field of view should be taken up by the TV. So let's say that you've got typical vision for a human being. And just for the record, I actually don't have typical vision. I have less than what is typical. So if you don't have typical vision, please don't feel badly about it. I'm just using it as a way of setting, uh, you know, a framework. So typically, humans have a field of view of an arc of around 210 degrees or between 210 and 220 in front of them. And that is, if you were to draw straight lines out from the very edges of your vision while you're looking straight ahead, then the angle between those lines would be somewhere around 210 degrees. Now, not all of that vision is equal, right? The stuff closer to the edges of your vision, well, that's in your peripheral and you won't see as much sharp detail there. You're aware of things that happen in the periphery, 
but you're not focusing on that. In fact, when you get beyond about 30 degrees arc, you're really talking about the mid-peripheral part of your vision. So generally speaking, you want your TV to take up no more than, say, 30 to 40 degrees of your field of view. And this should guide your decision when it comes to figuring out where you need to put, say, your chair or your couch or beanbag or whatever it is. But I don't know about you. I don't have like a handy dandy protractor to help me figure out that kind of stuff. Like what degree arc am I looking at when I've got something in front of me? So we go to a more basic formula to kind of rough it out. And that formula is to multiply the size of your television's screen in inches by the number 1.6. That's our constant. And that will give us the number of inches that we should sit away from that TV to get that 30-degree view in our field of view. Or let's say that you are starting from the other side, right? Like you already know how far away you plan to be sitting from where your TV is going to go. Well, you could take that distance in inches and then divide that by 1.6, and that would give you a rough idea of how large a television you should go and shop for. All right, so let's use an example. Let's say that I have just gone out and I've purchased a 55-inch television, and I want to know how far from this television I should have my couch so that I can get that optimal viewing experience and have that 30-degree field of view view of the screen. So I take the size of the screen, 55, I multiply that by 1.6, and that gives me 88 inches. So when I convert that into feet, that's 7.3 feet or so, so a little more than seven feet away. And that will give me that 30-degree view of the television. And it doesn't have to be exact. It's kind of the ballpark figure. It tells you, all right, somewhere around seven feet, you should have a pretty good viewing experience. But What if instead I've got a room and I've got it set up so I know where the couch is going to go, I know where the TV is going to go, but I haven't bought the television yet, but I know the couch has to be this distance from the TV, and I happen to know that it's eight feet away from where the television is going to be. Well, then we convert our eight feet to inches. That's 96 inches. We divide 96 by 1.6. That gives us 60. So that means we would want something close to a 60-inch television to go in that space. It's a good general rule to follow, assuming that you're talking about UHD televisions, which again, those resolutions are high enough where you're not likely to have any issues when it comes to resolution quality. Also, you don't have to be right on the dot for any of these measurements. 30 degrees is your target, but really just, you know, if you're a little bit closer, a little bit further away, it's not going to ruin the experience. All right. So that's resolution. And I should also add, you should really get the benefits of resolution if the source of the video you're watching matches the resolution of your display. Uh, Or to put it another way, what you see on screen is limited by the weakest component in your system. And sometimes you might not even be able to view it. Like if your TV is an HD TV and you're trying to watch a 4K video on it, that just ain't going to work, period. But let's say that your TV is the highest point in your system, well, you're still limited by whatever the lowest point is. So if you're watching an old VHS tape and you're using your 8K UHD TV, it's not going to look like 8K video. 
it's going to be limited to VHS levels of resolution, which is close to standard definition. So the quality of what you see depends on what that video source is coming from. If you don't have a source that can create outputs of 4K, let alone 8K video, then you're not really going to get the benefit of that higher resolution. Well, there is one thing these higher definition televisions can do to compensate for lower resolution video sources. This is called upscaling, which is really a necessity. It's not like it makes it sound like it magically makes video better. That's not really what upscaling is doing. But let's say that you wanted to watch a lower resolution video on your high resolution screen and there was no way to adjust for this difference, okay? So there's no system in place to have this video somehow expand to fill the number of pixels that are on your UHD television screen. Well, that video just contains information for an image that takes up a specific number of pixels horizontally and vertically. So what you could do is have that video play on your screen, but it only takes up those pixels. So it would be like a little thumbnail video. It would be like maybe in the corner, maybe playing in just the very center of your screen with lots of black space around it because it only takes up that subset of pixels and your television has way more pixels than the video source does. This would be kind of like those thumbnail videos you occasionally see on websites, and it's not a very satisfying experience. Or you could build in an upscale function. And this is a process in which the television essentially starts to fill in pixels to make up for the fact that the video source is a lower resolution than the screen can display. And it's a way of boosting the pixel count of the original video source. Now, typically, this means that the television is, is using light that's of a similar quality in neighboring pixels to fill in for missing ones. So let's say that we've got a video and it happens to be showing a green meadow and a blue sky. Well, the television would essentially be inserting pixels that would be shades of green similar to the green in the meadow over in the meadow side of it, or shades of blue similar to the blue of the sky in the sky part of it, and try to match the brightness to neighboring pixels to kind of fill out and even out this image. So you're adding information to something that was being fed to the screen. This process does not add detail, however. So it doesn't make those images more clear or more sharp. So the bigger gap you have in resolution between your display and the video source, the less good it's going to look. So an 8K TV upscaling a VHS video would not just magically look like 8K television. It would it'd look pretty janky. All that being said, resolution is really just one factor to consider when you're looking at televisions. There are tons of UHD TVs on the market, and they are not all equal. Some are just plain better when it comes to picture quality, even if they happen to have the same number of pixels as a competing brand. Now, anyone who remembers the days when we used to buy digital cameras, you know, before all of our phones came with one, you'll remember how the megapixel number was a really big selling point for cameras. You know, the general marketing point was that more megapixels means better pictures. Except it didn't, at least not necessarily. Megapixels, which just refers to the resolution output of a camera, 
is really just one part of what can make a picture good. But it is way easier to sell a camera to the public by saying, this one goes to 11, than it would be to try and describe all the different factors that go into the quality of a photo. So the same thing is true with televisions. But another really important thing besides resolution is a television's contrast ratio. And that refers to the ratio that describes the difference between uh, the luminance or the brightness, if you prefer, of the darkest shade that the display can produce and the brightest shade that it can produce. And you want a really high contrast ratio, which indicates a wide spectrum of luminance. And that can really impact image quality. I'll explain a bit more, but first let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision whatever the future holds artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ends time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a giggillionaire available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit att.com hypergig for details (music) 
Okay, we were talking about contrast ratio. Now, some televisions naturally just have better contrast ratios, especially when it comes to showing off the darker colors, and this comes down to the technologies that actually power the TVs. Televisions that have a backlight, uh, that is, the image is generated on screen, it's coming courtesy of little tiny lamps that are behind each pixel, Uh, those can have trouble with darker colors. And that's because that lamp is essentially it's always on, even during the dark scenes. And the liquid crystals that are meant to block the light, sometimes they allow a little bit of light to bleed through. And sometimes that means that dark stuff that should be, say, pitch black, might actually come out looking more like their charcoal gray when they're on your screen. And if you're trying to watch something in which a character in really dark clothing is moving around in a dark building, it might just look like you're looking at a big dark gray screen with nothing going on. In fact, that's what a lot of Batman movies might look like on one of these screens. And this is particularly noticeable if your room is really dark as well. In bright rooms, it's not quite as bad. Some televisions have what's called dynamic contrast, which puts the backlight into a low power mode to reduce that kind of bleed through, and that helps a bit. And of course, not all televisions rely on the same technology. So LED televisions have little LED, you know, light-emitting diodes, as lamps behind a liquid crystal display or LCD panel. And this type is the kind that can have that light bleed through. The LCD crystals act kind of like window shades. They control how much light can pass through to the the screen, but they aren't necessarily perfect at blacking everything out. There are actually a couple different LED panels that can have different effects. So a vertical alignment panel, those tend to be more efficient in blocking light. They have better contrast as a result. Uh, Then you have in-plane switching panels. These tend to let a little bit more light through, so this is where you might get some of that bleed through. But you rarely see these bits of information about what kind of LED display the television has on the TV box, right? So it's hard to kind of shop for that. But then you could also use an OLED screen. OLEDs are organic light-emitting diodes. They don't need those little backlights. They can sort of... Think of these as little bitty points that act as a light source and a pixel all in one go. And they can actually turn on or off, you know, dynamically. And thus, they tend to be much better when it comes to contrast. They can show darker colors with more accuracy. And I would finally be able to tell what the heck Batman was actually doing. Several years ago, I would also be talking about plasma televisions, which could also provide pretty amazing contrast, although at the expense of brightness. They couldn't get as bright as LED TVs could, typically. But plasma TVs were really expensive. They never really caught on the same way that LED TVs did. Plus, there was this potential issue of burn-in, meaning that if you had a plasma screen and you were showing the same image for a long time, you might have a remnant of that image that could stick around even after when you're watching other stuff, so it affects the quality of your experience. But the major TV companies pretty much stopped making plasma televisions back in 2014, so it's kind of a moot point. And uh, before I move on, I should also talk about projectors, too. Uh, So far, I've been focusing on TV sets, but one way you can trick out a home theater is to get a really nice projector, which can give you a big screen experience at a much lower price point, depending on, you know, which model you're looking at. And I do mean depending, because there are some projectors out there for high-end markets that are in the tens of thousands of dollars range. That is way outside of my budget. 
But you can find others that are, you know, around $500 to $1,000. They're still expensive, but they are less expensive per inch than your flat screen televisions typically are. Like you can get screens that are 120 inches or larger. And if you have a really big home theater setup, that means that you could have a effectively a 120-inch or 240-inch TV, but for a fraction of the cost of some of these other flat panel display styles. You can also find a range of resolutions with projectors as well, including ultra-high definition projectors, so you can find 4K projectors, no problem. Uh, and you can really create that kind of theater experience. But one thing that matters a lot with this particular setup is ambient light. You want as little light in your environment as possible. You want that room to be dark if you're going to be using a projector. So that usually means that projectors are best in spaces that have few or no windows, or you have treated those windows with like blackout curtains or blackout shades so that you can have a really dark movie dungeon. Um, Televisions can give you a good experience at other light levels, so they, you know, they're not as dependent upon this. So really this comes down to your setup, like what room you're planning on using as a home theater. If your home theater is going to be out in a sunroom, well, you're probably not going to have a good experience with a projector unless you're only watching things in the dead of night. Oh, and what's more, you can also find projectors that have built-in Wi-Fi receivers and even ones that have apps included to let you access popular streaming services. So you don't have to hook the projector up to some other computer or set-top box in order to get those functions. Those projectors do exist, and that's pretty darn cool too. They're, they're kind of neat. Now it's time to chat about another confusing factor in image quality, and that is HDR. And this one's really irritating because... While there is a standard HDR, there are other flavors of HDR, and that means there's lots of competing technologies all trying to accomplish the same goal, but they're not necessarily compatible with each other. That means you could end up buying an HDR TV and HDR setup and that the two don't necessarily work together. Like if your setup is working on one set and your TV is meant for a different set, you got some issues. So let's get into that. Uh, so HDR, in case you're not familiar, stands for high dynamic range. This became the buzzword of modern TVs, and it tends to be one of those features that gets positioned as a main selling point. So when resolution used to be the big differentiator, now it's, does it have high dynamic range? Well, and it centers around this representation of, of color and brightness. So dynamics references extremes, right? So like in a, in sound, let's say you're talking about music, you would say a song was really dynamic if there was a lot of variation between the loud parts and the soft parts of the song. If there were a lot of levels there, volume levels, that's a lot of dynamics, as opposed to a piece that maintains more or less the same level of volume throughout the whole piece. With televisions, these dynamics are in the shades and brightness of the colors on the screen, which ideally manifests as really vibrant on-screen displays. So the colors really pop out at you, and there could be much more subtle shifts with light and shadow when you're working with a system that has really good HDR. In fact, a superior television with high resolution and HDR could even give you the feeling that you're looking through a window almost rather than a screen because HDR, if it's implemented well, can even convey a sense of depth. 
And this is true even if the television isn't a 3D TV. And let me tell you, I am so glad we are past the 3D television fad because that meant I didn't have to talk about 3D in this episode. But there are some caveats when it comes to HDR. And one is that every component in your system that deals with video has to be HDR compatible in order for you to get the benefit. So let's say that you have a game console and it supports HDR, and you've got a television that supports HDR, but the cable you're using to connect your console to your TV isn't HDR compatible. Well, you would not be able to take advantage of HDR. Or let's say that your TV and your cable are both HDR ready, but your video source isn't. Same problem. Every single component has to be HDR ready in order to take advantage of HDR. Moreover, HDR is kind of, it's more what you call guidelines, as Barbosa would say. It's like a defined goal. It's a system that has to achieve a certain benchmark in, uh, in, in color representation in order to be considered HDR. But how it goes about achieving that benchmark, which is technically, you know, a resolution of at least 4K and a certain contrast ratio, that isn't standardized. So in other words, you're saying, here's your destination, but how you get there is up to you. So that means there are different flavors of HDR. There's HDR10. That's your baseline version. Most other versions support HDR10. So hopefully if you have a setup, you can use that. But then you have other more, you know, uh, feature-filled versions. There's Advanced HDR, which was a product from Technicolor. There's Dolby Vision, uh, which is kind of like HDR+. And there are more besides that. So to take advantage of those versions, you would have to have your television and all your other components be compatible with that specific version of HDR for you to be able to experience it. So you could end up with an HDR system that can't really play certain HDR media, at least not with the HDR effects you were expecting because the media was built for a different version of HDR. And yeah, that kind of stinks. But when it all does work together, it's pretty phenomenal. So your display should have a great contrast ratio. It should have great resolution. It should have HDR. What else? Well, you might consider the refresh rate. I don't see this touted as much as it was a few years ago, right around the time when Peter Jackson was releasing the Hobbit films. That's really when refresh rate became a big thing. It kind of got a bad name at the time, too. Technically, refresh rate describes the number of times the television refreshes the image on the screen each second. And we measure this in hertz, or cycles per second, and it's somewhat similar to the frame rate of a film. You know, we typically play back film at a speed of 24 frames per second. That means a film is really a series of still photographs, but when we play it at a fast enough speed, it creates the illusion of movement. Video is a little bit different. Uh, we do still have a way of changing the image super fast. And typically we're talking around like 30 to 60 times per second, 60 times being way more common these days. So that's like 60 hertz. Higher-end televisions can have higher refresh rates or at least higher advertised refresh rates. 120 hertz is not uncommon. Uh, but what does this mean as far as your viewing experience goes? Well, for fast-moving stuff, like stuff that's moving quickly across the screen as you're watching it, you would typically see a blurring of that image, and the image kind of looks a little bit softer as a result with televisions that have lower refresh rates. Uh, when you have faster refresh rates, those same images 
appear to be more sharp and more clear, more solid. So this is really great for certain things like sports where the effect is almost like you're there in person because you're not getting motion blur and stuff like that. Uh, In addition to refresh rate, TVs typically have some other anti-blurring technologies built into them. This can boost the perceived effect. So a lot of companies will actually describe this by just saying the TV has an even higher refresh rate than the television actually does. Like it might really refresh the screen 120 times a second, but it might be advertised at 240 or even higher because the technical detail of how many times it refreshes the screen isn't as important as saying, this is the effect you will perceive when you watch, right? Like those numbers don't really matter if they don't relate to what it's like to watch something on that television screen. They're just numbers. It means nothing. You know, it's the experience that actually means something. So if the image seems more sharp and clear, even when you're looking at stuff that's moving fast, that's all that really matters, not which collection of technologies made it possible or what numbers we associate with them. However, these technologies can also create uh, some weird effects that you might not like. So some folks complain that these faster refresh rates make stuff look artificial or fake. Uh, The phrase that you will frequently hear to describe this is it makes everything look like a Mexican soap opera, which don't get me wrong, I am not disparaging Mexican soap operas, but they do have a particular look to them and you don't necessarily want everything to look that way. A lot of theater buffs I know would actually turn these refresh rates off. Usually there was a setting somewhere in the television where you could just turn it to like 60 hertz or 120. Anything beyond that, a lot of people just kind of shied away from. And they would opt for that lower refresh rate and retain that motion blur for stuff like TV shows and movies, maybe activating the higher refresh rate for stuff like sporting events and that kind of thing. And as with many of the things I mentioned in this episode – A lot of this falls to marketing strategies, right? Like having a bigger number to point to is a way of saying, this is how we differentiate our product from our competitors. So knowing that, being savvy as a consumer is really important, right? Being able to see through the marketing speak in order to understand what's actually being sold to you, that is critical, especially when you're talking about something like the centerpiece of a home theater, which is going to presumably be a fairly expensive technology, whether it's a television or a projector. So it it behooves you to do this kind of research, understand what these components do. Also think about the other things you want to have as part of your home theater and make sure they're all compatible before you go all in. Because there's nothing worse than getting a whole bunch of pieces of technology together, hooking them up, and then realizing there's a compatibility issue. I've had that happen to me In different aspects, numerous times, it is incredibly frustrating and disheartening because you're so excited going into it. So it's good to know this stuff before you really start making purchases. Well, I'm going to wrap this up now for the televisions, but we will do a couple more episodes. I want to talk about sound. We need to talk about sound systems for home theaters and what all those mean because that's another confusing technological minefield to walk through, right? Because there are so many different variations on surround sound and which ones are right for you. I also want to talk about some of the other components that you would find, like what are the differences in the different resolution video streaming devices and video playing devices you can find. 
Does it make sense to buy an 8K television right now? How much 8K content is out there? What are the limiting factors? So we're going to talk about more of those things in our our next episode. But this episode, we are going to wrap up. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me and let me know. The best way is on Twitter. Uh, You can... Tell me about things I messed up in old articles. I can't change them. I don't work for How Stuff Works anymore. But um, uh, you know, we can always write to the editor and say, "Hey, we should really change this, or you should really change this," because I can't, I can't do it. Because um, I would like to see that happen. I, you know, I, I, I'll own up to when I goof and using a gendered noun at the very beginning of an article that should be universally you know, applicable, that was a, that was a bad, that was a bad call on my part. So yeah, glad that I was called out for that. Uh, I mean, it stinks that it happened, but that's my fault. (laughs) Not not the person who told me. If you have any other suggestions, like I said, hit me up on Twitter, techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.